Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. I'm pleased to bring to you a returning guest. We are joined today by Michael Howell. He is the CEO of Cross Border Capital and the author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. In this conversation, Michael shares where we are in the global liquidity cycle. It is heading upward and we discuss some of the implications of that. We also talk about the changing financial system and that the Fed will probably move toward debt monetization and the impacts there. That's why Michael sees monetary inflation hedges like gold and Bitcoin moving upward. We discuss why he thinks gold is headed for a breakout moment and why it is not out of the question that we could see gold rise by 50% to a 3000 level in the next two to three years. As always, I enjoyed this conversation with Michael. I learned a lot from him, I always do, and I know you will too. Be sure to watch the video for this one because Michael does have a nice presentation prepared for you all. I hope you all enjoy this one and let me know what you think. Michael Howell, CEO of Cross Border Capital and author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. It is great to welcome you back on the show. And Michael, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure, Julia. Good to be here. It is always a pleasure. And I have to say, you're one of our most popular and in-demand guests. So I'm excited to have you, especially as we round out the, uh, the rest of the year and start to talk about 2024 outlooks. And Michael, I would love to start where I always start with my guest, and that is to get their big picture, their macro view. And I know for you, liquidity is such an important part of that story. So let's start there and take as much time as you need to set the table, if you will. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Um, first to say, there's a lot going on. And as you rightly say, we look at liquidity, global liquidity. It's the main factor, in our view, that drives markets. And Basically, over the last 12 months, we've seen a significant, I mean, not substantial, but a significant increase in global liquidity, which is actually why asset markets have pushed higher. And um, although you know there's been a concentration in the US around the Magnificent Seven, that doesn't really matter. Uh, liquidity is basically there and it's operating. It's pushing asset prices up. And I think you can start to see now with uh, latest evidence of traction in the gold market uh, and clearly in crypto with Bitcoin picking up, uh, these are signs, very, very good liquidity barometers. Um, so what does 2024 bring? I think the answer is more of the same. And if we drill down into exactly why liquidity is increasing, the main reasons come down to what central banks are doing. Now, it may not be their direct liquidity injections that are, if you like, the complete picture. It's also the effect they're having on the fixed income markets and in the backdrop, what we're seeing is fixed income market volatility beginning to drop down to low levels. Now, that's a little bit arcane. It's a bit of a wonkish area, but it's actually something that matters a lot to global liquidity conditions. And I'll try and explain those, those factors in a moment. But effectively, the central banks uh, together, uh, collectively, I'm not saying there's a concerted action here, but uh, if you add the parts up, liquidity is beginning to increase. And I think you can see that in a number of ways. To set the scene, the chart in front of you, the, this chart that we're putting up, is really explaining what global liquidity is. And I think it's very important just to take a moment to drill into this and to try and explain why this matters and maybe why this matters a lot more than interest rates. 
Now, interest rates are the traditional focus that many macro uh, strategists and economists look at, but we're kind of in a very different world right now. Um, interest rates matter a lot when you're in a world where there's a lot of new financing going on. In other words, there's capital spending booms, and it's capital spending that's really driving the economy. It's not the case anymore. Particularly in the West, what you're seeing is it's the consumer or it's the public sector through the government that's really driving uh, the economy. Uh, interest rates are less important because there's not a lot of capital raising going on. What we've got is financial markets are playing a role in terms of rolling over debt. And we've got such, such massive debts worldwide, uh, not just public debt, but private debt. But debt needs to be refinanced. And if you're refinancing debt, rolling over, consider a home mortgage when that comes up for renewal, you've got to roll that. If you don't make the roll, you're homeless. So that kind of fixes the mind in many ways. And so you've got to think about this in a general sense. Debt needs to be rolled. And what you need for debt to be rolled is balance sheet capacity. And that is liquidity. Central banks play a big role in actually creating that platform of liquidity. And as the slide says, what you've got here is a measure of global balance sheet or financial sector balance sheet capacity. And it's not the cost of capital, it's the capacity that matters when you're rolling over debt. So that's number one consideration. All financial crises that we can think of in the last two to three decades have been refinancing crises. There's not sufficient liquidity in the system. So going forward, what do we expect? And if you look at this second slide, which is a heat map, what that does is to look at what the central banks globally, and there are about 75 different central banks around the world depicted in this chart, what they're really up to. The heat map is pretty much self-evident, I guess. It's looking at red is saying central banks are very tight. Green is saying they're loose. And as you sort of move between the hues of red and green into sort of a yellow or orange, that's depicting a more neutral stance. And the point we're making here is that if you take a look in detail, drilling into what policymakers are doing, they're beginning to inch liquidity back into their systems. We've seen that in the US with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is publicly saying the balance sheet of the Fed is shrinking. That is true, but they're actually simultaneously putting liquidity back into the system, evidence bank reserves. They're picking up, uh, and they've picked up 20% since the start of uh, 2023. So that's a meaningful increase. But if you look at the chart, what you're getting is an increasing shift from the red spectrum more and more towards the green. We're not green yet, but we're moving in that direction. And therefore, omens for 2024 are good. Now, just before I leave this theme, um, what we need to look at is the cycling context. And I maybe have shown this chart to you before in previous uh, iterations of, uh, of, of this discussion. What this is showing is our index of global liquidity conditions. And this is something that I've been using for, well, I must admit, decades in truth, uh, right back to when I worked at uh, the investment bank Salomon Brothers. And this was a, a key tool in understanding how the markets were working. It's all about money flow. And what the chart is demonstrating, the black line is an index we put together, which is showing the flow of global liquidity through world financial markets. It's an index from zero to 100, 50 is neutral, and uh, a rising index is a lot better than a falling index. The sine wave on that chart 
is uh, trying to indicate the direction uh, and the sweep of that cycle looking forward. So what we can see here is a bottom in the global liquidity cycle in October of last year. Liquidity leads markets, remember. And so what that would tell you is we're switching from headwind facing investors to now a tailwind. Uh, many, many macroeconomists were arguing that 2023 was going to be a bad year, uh, was going to be a recessionary year, would be a time when you wanted to just stick into cash. That has not been true. Liquidity, again, has been a major driver and a key thing to watch. And what we would envision from that chart is the next peak in the cycle does not occur until late 2025. So we're probably now moving towards that mid-cycle phase. That's very much out of kilter with the consensus view. But I would say don't necessarily listen to the rhetoric of, uh, of other people. Start to look at what the markets are telling you. That's really important. So that's, in a nutshell, what we're looking at, rising liquidity. And I can go into a little bit more as to why that's happening, if you like. I would love to hear more. Um, I mean, I'm taking tons of notes. and I have, I have so many questions, but let's start there. I want to hear more on why that is. And then I'll, then I'll ask why I follow on to that. Okay. Well, what I'm going to uh, move into in this bit is to say, uh, just before I explain the detail, let me look at one of the results of what's going on. And I think this is potentially quite an exciting area to think about. Now, what we've done in this chart is to draw up global liquidity as a stock rather than the index of rate of change that we previously saw. And the black line there is showing the path of global liquidity over time. And that, uh, that chart is scaled on the right-hand side. So what you're looking at here is a figure of around $175, $200 trillion for that pool of liquidity. Now, as I said, what's driving that are the central banks. Um, the central banks are beginning to push more cash into the system, but that gets progressively levered up um, by private sector credit providers. Why are the central banks doing this? The main reason is that there are such heavy debt burdens to fund from the public sectors that it's increasing pressure on the monetary authorities to take up some of that debt themselves. Now, what that is normally thought about is so-called quantitative easing. So the Federal Reserve buying treasury debt and putting it on its balance sheet has been one of the reasons the Federal Reserve balance sheet has swollen so large in recent years. I mean, it's now about seven and three quarter trillion dollars. But uh, you know, way back to 10 years ago, we were talking at barely a trillion. So there's been a massive increase in the size of the Fed balance sheet. But that basically absorbs a lot of treasury securities. Now, just think of the background we've got here. And I'm thinking of the background over maybe the next few years rather than the next few months. What we have is a situation where entitlement spending, mandatory spending on items like Medicare, Social Security, uh, defense you can throw in, are escalating fast. Aging demographics are pushing up the former two, and clearly geopolitical tensions uh, are edging up uh, defense spending. If you look at those items, they're beginning to absorb large, larger and larger amounts of debt or requiring more debt. On top of that, the interest bill that the Treasury faces in the US 
in 24 is probably going to test a trillion dollars. So you can see here that these numbers are becoming big. If foreigners, which 10 years ago owned half of US debt, half of treasury debt, are no longer interested in buying with the same alacrity that they used to, viz China, viz Japan, etc. China won't be buying very much more in all, in all probability. The Saudis are becoming twitchy. They're another big buyer. Uh, we've seen the United Arab Emirates in recent days say they're going to start accepting uh, oil payments in different currencies. That's clearly another red light. So all these factors are saying the ability of foreigners to absorb that debt is now compromised. Uh, the private sector will only do that at a cost, in other words, at a price at an interest rate. And that interest rate may be unattractive to the Treasury because it pushes up debt through the interest bill as well. So the Federal Reserve may be required to come in. If you doubt that uh, uh, projection, take a look at the bipartisan Congressional Budget Office projections. Um, the CBO in the US already does these calculations, and they have a significant escalation in the take-up of Treasury debt by the Federal Reserve uh, going out to uh, their projections finish in 2033. So what we can see here is the prospect of, in our estimation, by probably 2030, a $10 trillion Federal Reserve balance sheet, much bigger than today. Now, that will spur the growth of global liquidity. Other central banks are going to be forced to do the same thing. As I've said before, you know, the US in many ways may be one of the cleanest shirts in the laundry here. Uh, it's, we're not singling out America as necessarily the worst guy. There's a lot of others. Europe is in a desperate situation by itself. But what you're starting to see is this pressure for more and more money printing or monetization of debt. And that ultimately is how global liquidity rises. And what you can see here is projections out to the end of 25 in the black line for how much uh, global liquidity increases. Think of this as monetary inflation. This is exactly what it is. Now, what I put on the same chart, which is the really interesting point I would venture, is that the orange line on that chart is the gold price. And what have we seen in recent days? Gold has broken through, it's tested and broken through the $2,000 an ounce level. Now, that chart is suggesting that you've got further increases in gold. The scale on the left that I've, uh, that I've used here is actually the pool of all monetary hedges, as we call them, which basically includes the stock of gold and cryptocurrency stocks, so including Bitcoin. Now, I, I consider Bitcoin a monetary hedge for want of any other evidence, because that's pretty much what it's done in the last few years. It's moved very closely with global liquidity. In actual fact, the reality is that it has about five times the sensitivity uh, to global liquidity. This is what the data tells us than gold does, and gold is very sensitive to global liquidity. So what you can say looking at that chart, the orange line is likely to follow the black line higher. And so the value of monetary hedges, in other words, the gold price and the Bitcoin price are going to go up from here. And that is the reality of the debt burden that we all face. And therefore, that is a great investment area, in our view, to put more money in, into mon these monetary hedges. Now, what does it mean in uh, dollars and cents? What will the gold price go to? I would envision that it's entirely possible that the gold price uh, increases over the next 
two to three years by maybe as much as 50%. Uh, so I would say it's entirely feasible for gold to test $3,000 an ounce. I think that's uh, that's not uh, you know not a particularly racy forecast. Uh, it could go a lot higher than that over the medium term because there's a lot more monetary inflation behind that. Now, just to emphasize one final point here is the dotted line at the bottom is U.S. consumer price inflation, okay? And that is how that has moved uh, against the same starting point as global liquidity. Now, the reason for picking that out is that many, many people say, although it's wrong, that gold is an inflation hedge. It's not an inflation hedge, or it's not a high street inflation hedge. It is a monetary inflation hedge, and that's very different. High street prices have two moving parts. One is the monetary element, in other words, the central bank devaluing their paper money. And the second moving part is what we think of as cost inflation. In other words, the cost of making products could be higher oil prices, it could be higher wage costs, etc. Those two things fuse together in the high street to deliver uh, high street inflation. Now, the reason for citing that is that in 2024, we have got the two big ingredients that are traditionally cited as to why gold doesn't do well. Number one, high real interest rates, and number two, falling consumer price inflation. We figure consumer price inflation will be down next year. That may be arithmetic because costs are falling away as the economy slows, but monetary inflation is building up in the background. And what you're likely to see here is further increases in monetary inflation and therefore, the gold price is going to be very, very well supported. Now, I can throw in one other point, finally, which is uh, a point to ponder. And this is this is a, a, an important point to make. Many people would have read in recent months uh, the about the BRIC economies. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. We know there are tensions, geopolitical tensions between America and the West more generally, and the BRICS grouping, okay? Russia in particular, China probably, Brazil, who knows? Uh, but there's clearly tension. The BRICS summit in the summer of this year uh, encouraged a lot of other countries to potentially join. The BRICS friends group is a group of maybe 20 uh, countries that are either inside already or potentially likely to join that BRICS club. Uh, as an alternative to current, you know, international architecture like uh, the G7 grouping or whatever, it's a more independent uh, uh, grouping for this for these countries. The BRICS and friends hold gold bullion, but they hold increasing amounts of gold bullion. And what this chart is showing is America's gold stock at eight thousand tons of gold held in Fort Knox, which is that horizontal deep red line, and the orange line that is moving up and now finally breaking it is the gold holdings of the BRIC economies and their friends. What they have been doing over recent years, and it's very clear here, they have been increasing their gold holdings, and their gold holdings are rising at about 400 tons every year. Now, that is a sizable amount. If my math is correct, it's about 20 to 25% of total production annually in the world economy of gold. And these central banks are buying and they're continuing to buy. The US dollar 
is no longer the marginal reserve asset in the world economy for these countries. That is significant. Supply wow. and demand are getting out of line. Hey there, I just want to quickly interrupt the video and just say thank you. Thank you so much for coming to this channel and choosing to watch this interview. I hope that you are enjoying it and I appreciate you visiting the channel. If you like what you see, please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything. It's totally free and it will keep you up to date on all of my interviews. I post two interviews a week with some of the most incredible people in, in finance and investing and your support will help me bring in some more amazing guests. If you already are one of my subscribers, thank you so much. I cannot express to you how much your support means to me. I am incredibly grateful that I get to do something that I'm truly passionate about. And you being there week after week, it not only gives me that energy, but it just gives me that faith to keep going. And it means everything to me. And I love seeing you all in the comments section. I love interacting with you. I love interacting with you on email or social media. I just love hearing from you all. And I just appreciate your support so much. I feel incredibly lucky that I get to do something that I just love. So I just want to say thank you and appreciate you subscribing. All right, back to the interview. Michael, I have to say this has been, it's fascinating. And I think what I love about having you on is you always help us learn. And I'm just taking a, a note and you point out that I guess a lot of folks do get confused when they think about gold and they think about it in relation to just the CPI. But as you point out, it's really monetary inflation. Can you just help folks understand, maybe define some of the terminology, if you will, and why is it that it moves with monetary inflation? Yeah, it's um, it basically, uh, if you think of high street inflation as having two components, okay, one of those components is the monetary dimension. In other words, uh, we're using uh, paper money to buy things in. Things that products are denominated in paper money, so we're buying, you know, an, an auto in dollars. We're buying, uh, you know, a can of Coke with a dollar uh, or so, and that's clearly how prices are denominated. So that could change if the central bank began to furiously print money at a rate uh, that is more akin to Argentina you'd start to see the price of those items go up. But that's not because the real cost of producing a can of Coke is going up. It's purely because the paper money is being rapidly devalued. And you've everyone's got those visions of in Weimar, Germany in the 1920s of people using wheelbarrows to basically buy loaves of bread. Uh, a wheelbarrow is a paper money, that is. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going to get anywhere near that, but you know, it, it focuses the mind. And if the Federal Reserve is continuing to print money, which I'm arguing it's forced to because of this debt monetization, uh, then you're going to get an undermining of the value of paper money, a devaluation of that paper money. Now, it may well be that other countries are doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. The dollar can still rise against the paper euro or the paper yen or the paper yuan in China. That's entirely feasible. But it will not rise uh, in value against gold. The gold price will start to go up. And you might think of the gold price as being kind of like, in navigational terms, the pole star or north star uh, that, that navigators use. It's a fixed point in the sky. Well, gold is the fixed point in our monetary system. And although people say the gold price is going up, in truth, 
what really is, is happening is the gold price is staying where it is and all these paper assets are devaluing against it. So that's the way to think about it. Now, gold or monetary inflation is one of those inputs into, into high street prices. The other is, is costs. So if oil prices suddenly go up, if they double, then the cost of goods is going to go up, even though the Federal Reserve is not doing anything, okay, or may not be doing anything. So you've got to look at these two moving parts. In the high street, cost inflation and monetary inflation fuse together in a hybrid or a cocktail that produce an outcome, which is high street inflation. And if you think back over the last two years, the COVID uh, problems actually caused a lot of supply-side shocks, shortages, difficult to deliver, difficult to produce goods, supply chains breaking down. That was a cost inflation. And it's that which is actually coming out of the system now as the economy basically gets its act together again. And that's important. That's why the Fed has had great success here. It's actually the private sector, uh, if you like, renormalizing and getting uh, supply chains back into, into order. But that's only one component of inflation. The other is the monetary element. If you think of asset prices in general, they are much more monetary inflation driven than cost inflation driven by definition uh, because there's an existing stock of them. Uh, and gold is entirely, uh, pretty much entirely driven by monetary elements. So that's that's why it works that way. And as you point out, it being... Um you know, it's driven by uh, the monetary inflation, and you point out um, like a price target or um, that it could go up fifty percent to to three thousand. And it also makes me wonder. You know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about monetary inflation, Bitcoin being a hedge against monetary inflation. Do you have any sort of outlook on Bitcoin and how it might? Will it have a breakout moment similar to gold? Well, I think the I think the first thing to say, Julia, is that you know, my view. Uh, and the view that I've always grown up with, and that comes back maybe to you know the years spent at Salomon Brothers, is, is you've got to, you've got to listen to what the markets are saying. That's really important. It's it's vital not to use economics to predict the markets. It's vital to get an understanding of economies from the markets first. And what you're seeing in markets is all the evidence of liquidity beginning to work. And liquidity is a leading indicator, not just for uh, financial markets, but also for economies too. And if you've got a situation where um, Wall Street's up strongly uh, through the year, you've had uh, technology stocks outperforming, you've had cyclicals outperforming defensive names, you've got the gold price rising, you're seeing evidence that Bitcoin is starting to get a much, much firmer bid. You're seeing the yield curve beginning to bottom and maybe pick up. Uh, you'll see evidence in other commodity markets more recently of iron ore prices uh, starting to uh, to move up quite smartly. All this is evidence which is telling you that the cycle is probably turning. Now, if the cycle is turning and what is driving this is monetary inflationary pressures, then you've got to start to move into more monetary inflation hedges. And that's pretty much how we envision things working. Now, I can give you a taster here on this slide that I've just put up, which is an asset allocation slide that basically uh, summarizes our philosophy of how we invest and how we uh, you know, encourage our, our clients to invest. Uh, on my Substack, which is called Capital Wars, uh, you know, we go through these things pretty regularly about how asset allocation works. 
And what this chart here is indicating is uh, on the left-hand side, it shows assets. On the right-hand side, it's showing industry groups. The traffic lights are basically, you know, what you see is what you get. You can drive through uh, a green light safely. You may be a little bit more cautious if it's an amber, and you certainly stop when it's on red. And the four zones that I've identified there, the investment regimes, rebound, calm, speculation, turbulence, are basically how the investment cycle moves. Think of it through the seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter, if you like. But essentially what you've got there is uh, a, a, if, a climatic or seasonal indicator. And we are right now in the rebound area. And we've been in rebound since the beginning of this year. Now, what should you have expected out of rebound? And let me just emphasize that this chart is not, is not a moving target. It's basically, this is set in stone. This is what we would always expect to see. So in every rebound, we expect to see equities uh, performing well. We expect to see commodities performing poorly. And we expect bond duration to be very bad. That's always the case. So that's what we'd always, always expect. Of course, we may be wrong. But this, if you like, uh, tapestry is trying to understand where we are in markets. So we think we're in rebound. and We're moving into calm. And that calm phase may well begin at some stage next year. If you're in rebound, your risk on, risk off uh, backdrop should have been around neutral. Okay, um, as I say, it's kind of amber. Equities should have been a major asset of choice. Credits should have performed well, and I would venture to say that both of those two asset classes have actually performed well this year and denied the skeptics very fully. Commodities, not what you want this year. Uh, they're beginning to form a bottom, but they've had some pretty poor performance through 23 so far. Bond duration, no way do you want that. Uh, and that's been a disaster area. Um, then start to look at the industry groups. In rebound, what you want are cyclicals and you don't want defensive stocks. That again has outperformed. You want technology, big performer. Financials, not really, but maybe a possibility. Uh, they, I guess, have been mixed to down. Energy, not the right time. But if we move towards calm, you can see on those industry groups that you stick with cyclicals, you stick with tech, you start to inch into financials, and you start to build up energy uh, and maybe other commodity names too. But you don't go into defensives. And if we're correct in this uh, assessment, uh, this is the way that the markets are moving. Now, uh, as they say, you know, when the facts change, we'll change our mind. But so far, this particular uh, picture seems to be where we are. I mean, we're pretty comfortable with this. Got it. And, you know, just kind of going back earlier in the conversation when you were talking about just global liquidity and the measure of the balance sheet, the capacity of capital, not the cost of capital. It matters when debt has to be rolled over. And as you pointed out earlier, and this was interesting to me, that all the crises before have been refinancing crises when there's not enough or not sufficient liquidity in the system. So I guess all of this, it bodes quite well for maybe the broader economy, if you will. It sounds like 2024 might be much brighter than the... Yeah, let, there was a lot let, of pessimism even. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me address that, Judy. I think the... Um, I mean, the first thing to say is this evidence past crises. If you go back to the most recent one, uh, let's say of a crisis, uh, rather than, a, I'd say COVID was an emergency, but a crisis was 2019, <clears throat> excuse me, in the US repo markets. 
uh, when there was a big tumble, uh, I believe it was August, early September, that was a refinancing crisis in the repo markets or the money markets. Uh, that was a time when the Federal Reserve came back and added liquidity. Uh, prior to that, we could say 2008, 2009, pure refinancing crisis. Uh, that was that was the problem. Uh, the issue then was, although Lehman was uh, yeah clearly a casualty, the real real problem, uh, which I think got you know, less publicity than it deserved, were the European banks. And actually, the Federal Reserve had to bail those out through swap lines, and that's kind of the untold story. Uh, the Fed was very clearly then acting as lender of the last resort to the world, but it was a refinancing crisis. Those countries could not get dollars in sufficient size. Then you go back to uh, the Asian financial crisis. That was, again, another example of a refinancing crisis where uh, many Asian economies uh, who are heavily dollar, dollar de- indebted uh, couldn't, get, uh, you know, couldn't get sufficient funds. So again, it's a funding crisis. Uh, and all these instances really go back to uh, you know, go back to refinancing problems. Uh, now, your point about the economy is very well taken. My view is that the nature of the world economy has changed, uh, that we're no longer being driven by a capital investment cycle, at least not in the West. Uh, what really matters is the consumer and the public sector, the government. Uh, what you've got or what you've had uh, in the last two years or so uh, from the perspective of the consumer, is pretty hefty savings thanks to COVID because of the government checks that were dished out. On top of that, there have been positive wealth effects, particularly in the last 12 months. Now, they may have been modest, but they clearly haven't been negative, and that's been sufficient to keep the consumer going. And rolling into 24, I guess those, uh, those, uh, those positive wealth effects should continue. On the other side, what you've got is the public sector, has been spending furiously. I mean, this is big, big government spending, big government and big spending. And that is what's keeping the US economy afloat. And other countries that haven't had that luxury, vis Europe and vis the uh, the sort of machinations that are going on currently in Germany about putting a break on fiscal spending, those are the debates that are, that are live right now, uh, they haven't had the luxury of that and those economies are in recession. Uh, equally, if you look at China, why has China suffered so much? because they've actually tightened during the COVID crisis, uh, whereas most other economies in the West eased. So you've got to look at the responses of the of the policymakers. Now, what's going to happen next year? Uh, well, I said on the consumer front, you're likely to get still a positive wealth effect, although one's got to expect with higher interest rates that there is some damage there to the consumer, which is starting to unfold. Fiscal policy is likely to be benign and continue. I mean, in my view as an outside observer, I'd say Janet Yellen is probably the most political Treasury Secretary I've seen for, for many iterations. And I think she's going to use uh, every opportunity to spend money next year to try and help Biden's re-election. I mean, I think that would be you know pretty much given. Uh, so there's not going to be any sizable restraint on the fiscal purse next year. And there is... Uh, yeah, there's some reserves in on the Fed balance sheet in the sense of what's called the Treasury General Account, uh, which the Treasury owns that can, they can run down and spend money. So there's those positive omens. I think the issue, uh, will there be a recession? My view is there may be technically, but I kind of view this as being a little bit like the ni- early 1990s, uh, where if people recall, there were like rolling recessions in different sectors of the economy, but the entire economy never really dipped down seriously. I think that's more the the climate I suspect. But I will have to say that you know this is about the cycle, uh, not about the trend. And the trend 
which in many ways depends upon small to medium-sized companies in the US. They are the productivity drivers, and they are suffering in two respects. Number one, you've got uh, high interest rates, which clearly is, is, is killing them. And the longer this goes on, the longer or the more damage there will be to the underlying trend in the US economy. Not the cycle, the trend here. That's the important bit. And the other point is regional banks. And I think the one's got to be realistic here is that it's not the Federal Reserve's job to put regional banks out of business. I mean, clearly the opposite. And you've had an inverted yield curve now for some substantial time. Uh, regional banks are losing money. We saw we got a taster with SVB uh, to the extent of which their bond portfolio was underwater. Um, that is clearly a, a warning a warning bell. Uh, the Federal Reserve, I would envision, would like to get the yield curve steeper, uh, a more positively shaped for next year uh, to make sure there is not a regional bank crisis in the election year, because I think that would be clearly a, a huge political hit uh, for the incumbents. Uh, and I think that in that regard, the Fed would want to get interest rates down at the front end of the curve uh, you know, as quickly as they can. Uh, and that's why I'm pretty optimistic. But a steeper yield curve and all these actions tell you there's more liquidity coming. Got it. And as you point out, liquidity is, global liquidity is what matters more than rates. Absolutely correct. Not saying rates don't been, matter, but one matters mm -hmm. more than the other. Understand that it matters more than the other. I have to say, it's been such a fascinating conversation. Michael, um, if you want to let folks know where they can you know, read your Substack, obviously follow you on social media. Um, I know you have a book out there as well, um, Capital Wars. And any parting thoughts, anything that you want to either emphasize or anything we didn't bring up in this conversation, please take the next few minutes to do so. Sure. Well, I, you know, I would uh, come back to the point that, you know, whether we're looking short term here or more particularly long term, what you've got to start to think about is how the nature of the financial system is changing. Debt is dominating the whole picture. Debt has to be refinanced. There's a lot of public debt out there. Uh, the appetite of foreigners for US public debt is being compromised, I would suggest, or certainly not as strong as it was. Therefore, domestic buyers are going to have to be encouraged. Uh, the, there's a constraint there in terms of how high rates can go. And my view is that yield curve control is coming everywhere at some stage. Uh, not just in Japan or Australia, it's coming to all Western markets. That means that effectively uh, the Federal Reserve is going to have to cut me, come in and buy uh, treasuries. Uh, that's debt monetization, pure and simple, whichever way you cut it, whether you call it QE or you use a new acronym QS for quantitative support. I don't know, but it comes to the same thing. Otherwise, we're dancing on the head of a pin a little bit with definitions. But that's the way things are going to evolve. Monetary inflation uh, or more liquidity means monetary inflation. Monetary inflation means the gold price and monetary inflation hedges like Bitcoin will go up. And I think that's the part of the portfolio to look at. Uh, I'm giving you a structural view. I may be incorrect. Therefore, test out what I'm saying by looking at how the markets are speaking. And if the markets are echoing these thoughts, just look at the momentum or the price charts of these instruments. And our view is they should be going up uh, if they're going up, then I think that's confirmation that we're in these sort of cycles. So that's what I'd be looking at pretty seriously. If you don't like uh, buying you know, gold outright, think of ETFs or think of uh, the Philadelphia Gold Bugs Index. That's another way to play the same thing. But you know, I think some part of a portfolio has got to be 
constructed with this sort of debt uh, debt burden in mind. Uh, and that's really the thought. If people want to follow what we do, um, the Twitter handle is at crossbordercap. Um, the website is crossbordercapital.com. And if you like to uh, look at Substack or subscribe to Substack, it's called Capital Wars. Uh, and that is the title that, you, as you suggested, is uh, the book I wrote a few years ago, which explains this whole global liquidity phenomenon. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Michael, you are always welcome on the show. I love listening to you. I love learning from you. Michael Howe, CEO of Cross Border Capital, author of Capital Wars. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, your insights, and all of your knowledge. Thank you again and be well. And I look forward to talking to you in 2024. Great, Julia. Thanks. Great pleasure to be on. Happy holidays to everybody and to you. Thank Likewise. You.